This is Kristen O'Brien, and you're listening to the NFX Podcast. This is the insider story of House Party. In the last two months, the video app has grown 1,600% to become the number one social app in 82 countries, including the U.S., with hundreds of millions of users. Its success, however, has been many years and trials in the making. In this episode, early investor and advisor James Courier joins Ben Rubin, the founder of House Party, to share the insider story of how the product went from zero to one to ubiquity. This is a masterclass in product pivots and perseverance that every founder will benefit from. Today, we're here with Ben Rubin. Uh, ben Rubin is the CEO and founder of a new company he's just announced called Slash Talk, which you probably don't know, but you will be knowing about. Um, he was also the founder of a company called Meerkat, which you might have heard about, which then evolved and changed into an app called House Party, which you undoubtedly have heard about. Because since COVID-19, it's become the number one social app in 82 countries, including the United States. It's had 1,600% growth in downloads. Hundreds of millions of people are using it. And all of this is coming from Ben and his teams that he's pulled together. Um, I was lucky enough to be an early seed investor in his company. And Ben and I have now known each other for a lot of years. And so today, it's uh, my great pleasure to be hanging out with him and talking about some things because I think every founder who's out there is going to benefit from hearing his thoughts, his perseverance, how he comes up with his visions, and the many ups and many downs that uh, Ben has been going through in the last few years since we've known each other. Uh, so today, Ben's here, and we can tell the real story that most founders never get to hear. Ben, welcome. Thank you. Hey, guys. So uh, let's go back six years to 2014. You and I met. You were still living in Israel. I was traveling there for uh, a week. I met more than 30 companies on that trip, and I really hit it off with you. And we decided that uh, I would invest in the company. And the name of the company at the time was Yevo, Y-E-V-V-O. What was the idea behind it? So Life on Air, which is the company you invested in, Seed, and the company that I, I founded in 2012 was focused on bringing people together in the most human way possible when they're physically apart. And we specifically focused on mobile-first live streaming experiences. And uh, that was the framework of the company. And what we did is a bunch of products, the first of which was Yevo. And it did a lot. Yevo tried to do a lot, including live streaming over Twitter, which was one feature inside of Yevo. And that was also one of the things that feature that was really successful in Yevo that was the inspiration behind next iteration, which was Meerkat. So the Yevo thing was doing live streaming video before it was really easy to do. You guys had some real technical challenges doing that. And, and it also got very viral in certain countries. You had hundreds of thousands of teens using this thing, but then it petered out. Then there wasn't the retention. And then you decided to move to the US. Why'd you move to the US? If you're trying to build consumer and you try to reach a mass appeal, you need to understand the environment in which you are conducting yourself. You need to know how things are being sold in the supermarkets, what people say to each other, what is like March Madness looks like. You know, all of these, those things that you can expect be with a mass appeal uh, and, and do it all remotely, especially not in culture. Like cybersecurity, I get things that are more behind the scenes. Uh, you can maybe do it. You are, but but, but if, you, if you want to do a, a social mobile app in the United States, you got to be in the United States. And, and Yevo, for, for that comment about the name, like one of the things that was funny is that Envivo is like being live. And that's one of the reasons it clicked for people in Mexico. Yevo was like number one in Mexico at some point. It was a phenomena. And, you know, that made me realize that back in back in 2014. Yeah, this is back exactly. in 2014. 2014, yeah. 2013. Yeah. yeah. OK, so then you moved to the United States and then and then I've invested in you. And then what do we do? What's the process? Uh, I got it. I don't I think I thanked you. But you know what? That's an opportunity to thank you publicly of taking so much time and dedication to explain the process of how to think about iteration and iterative thinking, because this is where we actually, we walk through and I remember that meeting. I remember going to that meeting. It was like in this place in Soma, you go down, uh, there was like some co-working space under that building and we sit and what we do is we do uh, a matrix. What are the use cases that we've seen in Yevo working? 
and what are the graphs that are actually correlating with that? And then we kind of create a heat map of like, uh, not a heat map, but a heating map, like what type of use case and graph we can work in. Like what we've seen with Yevo is that people in Michigan used Yevo to stream to their friends around school, high schools. And we're like, can we emulate this geofencing of the geofencing of, of a high school? And like, can you create a product where people open and see who is like in one mile from them? And can you create a network around that? So we kind of mapped everything. And then another one was somebody was in a concert of Lady Gaga in Yevo. And that was like one of our biggest streams because they, they used this feature that was hidden inside of Yevo to tweet and go live. I was like, oh, let's do broadcasting on Twitter. <laughs> and that was Meerkat. And then we had another one, Air. I don't know if you remember Air. So we came up with a, with a whole series yes. of ideas. We came up with a whole series of ideas. And yeah. the, the, the guideline was it needs to be dead simple minimum clicks, and we need to be able to bang it out in two months and move on. But he had a really good point, uh, which we took too hard. No, actually, I said it needed to be done in 30 days, which showed I didn't understand it. But then you did it in 60 days, and then you did the next one in 30 days. You actually did it. Yeah. You didn't think you could do it. Your team had taken... 14 months on the first app, exactly. eight months on the second app, and then took 60 days for the third app, and then 30 days for the fourth app, because you realized you could do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like so much, you know, because as we are approaching everything that we put in out there, and it all comes back to insecurity. And especially as founders, we, we deal a lot with insecurity. And one of the things that happen when you approach to put something out there for the first time, you kind of make sure it's pretty, you go and you cut around the trims and you groom yourself and like everything needs to be... Pr- but then you realize that actually there's a way to hack it. And the way you hack it is that being okay with authenticity, being okay with who you are, because people eventually, it kind of melts them and it kind of brings the good side of you and it makes people be okay with the things that they, that you don't like. And and if you create products that are authentic to the statement that you carry, just like a comedian coming every day on the stage, probably they ramble too much. They, they, you know, they feel uncomfortable, but slowly you start being comfortable in your own body. And I think that's the kind of, if you think about a company as an, organi- as an organism, that's the kind of culture we start into like we didn't care but what you would think about us we just cared about let's do something cool that's that fits the manifesto that fits the statement and just put it out there and we're okay with a bunch of things not not being solved right now and we're okay that some things are up in the air and we're okay with the fact that you're gonna have some bunch of questions to us that we're not gonna know how to answer but what was important is that if the melody was right people will dance. It doesn't matter if the equalizer or the bass or all the lights are not right. That's okay. People will dance if your melody is right. Seriously, with these software products and the language you put on them, your personality, the personality of the team comes out in these products and the users can feel it, right? And if you're doing it your own way, and this is something I've known about you for a long time, Ben, is you really do things your own way. And having that that meld of the insecurity of trying to get it right, but the security of doing it your own way, that that tension comes out in the products. And that, I think, really helps people to resonate with those products. So Meerkat launches in 2015. You spent 60 days building it, right? A quarter of the time you'd built the last one in. The following month is South by Southwest, right? So I've got a hotel room there. You and the team are sleeping on the floor and in the beds and Meerkat explodes. Take us to that moment. What's happening there? February 28th, uh, 2015, we put it on Product Hunt. And it, at that point, it was, I think you saw that presentation, like the three slides that were a memo to a board meeting about the Skunkworks project that we're doing while we're working on air, which was in the matrix, uh, live streaming to your contact list. And what happened is that the CTO and co-founder at the time, Itai, took Yevo and basically hacked the shit out of it to do this very simple product that the idea behind it was, can we get people from download to going live to their audience in one click? And we were able to actually do it for the first time in two clicks because you had to authorize Twitter first. But after that, it was one click and we have your name and we have your audience and we have all of this stuff and it goes out and people can watch, which was the biggest hurdle of all the you streams and the you now and all the live streamings that were, I don't know if people remember, there were so many broadcasting and live streaming products there, but they couldn't pass on because they were so obsessed in trying to get broadcaster to onboard their audience on. And once we realized that this is the biggest challenge, we said, well, why not? Why not just meet the audience where it is? 
API was open. And there were so many cool things to do with it. It was so many cool things to do with it. And, you know, I remember sitting sitting in the office with Itai and he's like discovering all these things about the API. And then we had this one of my favorite people that I worked with both on House Party and this guy, Ryan Cooley. And Ryan was like, oh, my God, I think that when two people tweet about the same hashtag, a third person, that's what one we were doing QA. We're doing QA to break and we discover that if two people tweet about the same hashtag, the third person get a push that Ben and James tweet on the same hashtag. So we decided to put hashtag Meerkat on all the streams. And what happened is that when people were, when people were tweeting, all their friends got to know about Meerkat. You know, and Itai discovered that you can actually, in the API, create that every, every live stream is a thread, is a Twitter thread. So all the comments because become reply. Then other people get to, you know, and it's basically becomes this monster. And I have this email exchange with Itai where he forwarded me email notifications from um, Twitter that and it letting you know that people um, in your network are tweeting these streams or talk because of those those cross signaling that they use, this algorithm that they use and how we used it into our advantage. And I remember he forwarded it to him and he says, I think this is going to grow. And I replied, no, this is going to explode. It's going to explode. And it was like two weeks before we released it. We knew that this is going to be highly explosive content. We designed this beautiful UI where we bring the uh, the watchers into it. And it was like really innovative at the time. You can also watch it whatever angle you watch it. I think Quibi does it now, but we were doing like when you can hold it both vertically and horizontally. And we, we did it in, in 2015. Kind of funny and, and cool. You know, what happened is that um, Twitter uh, bought Periscope two months before that or like three months before we launched. But they hadn't announced it, right? They haven't announced it. And what happens is, you know, they put $100 million behind that, that thing that they bought. And they're like, oh, wow, like <laughs> this startup is taking all like this investment that we have. And the, per- the Periscope app was quite similar to Meerkat in its functionality, but it wasn't as viral. It wasn't as viral. And I also don't, I don't believe that they were like copying us or stuff like this. It just, the, the stars align in a weird way. And it was like this awkward situation uh, where, you know, you work hard, you sell your company and all of a sudden somebody else hijacks all the, all the, all the spotlight. And then Twitter moved into basically how to protect their assets. We're there at South by uh, James. James is rocking a Meerkat chair. There was like 20, 20 shirts like this. And whoever wore it was the coolest person on the universe. The phone rings. It's like 10 o'clock on a Friday night. Exactly. It was, yeah, it was afternoon Friday night. We get a call and that's Jess Varelli and um, who is now at Google Venture and Kevin Well, both who I like very much, by the way, are on the phone and they were both um, on the Twitter team uh, there. I think Kevin was the VP product or something like that. Super nice people. And they're like, dude, we're sorry, but we're going to we're going to close the API tonight. I was not mad. First, like they dealt with it, you know, they were human about it. And and I also like my approach to life is like, I would do the same. Like I would do the same. <laughs> if I just put a, if that's my company, I just put a hundred million behind something else and you're using, and, and you know, the guidelines of the APIs, you cannot use the API to something that's competitive with Twitter. It's like bad luck, but it sucks. But we didn't, but we didn't know that Twitter had acquired them Ex- until like a day before. Exactly, right? exactly, and because it was unannounced. Exactly, and that's what they were telling me on the on the call. That's what they were telling me, like, "Hey, we have this thing, we bought it, and now you're competing with our thing, which is against the policy." And they were very, you know, I uh, I give it to them. They were very cool about it, and I was I was like just dealing with it the way I think people should deal with bad news, which is you just need to suck it up and understand what you can do and what's your next move. You know, there's nothing you, you can do uh, besides looking petty and like getting to get into under your skin for, for no reason. Yeah. And you, and you still had two or three more days of playing superstar at South by and getting interviewed by everybody. So you needed to keep that going. We showed out to all the interviews and like the app was still growing. The app was still growing. It was doing great. Then I think about, okay, going back in like, how do you deal with this kind of things? And like, how do you take your liabilities as just like a general framework for people who go out there and think about like how to navigate situations like this and like something, things just like suck and explode in your face, but you still have some things that you can do. And so we took a step back and we started looking at the data and we're like, okay, this is a liability. And the liability here is that they're about to launch Periscope and they have all this, all this reach, right? And 
Not only this, Facebook is announcing that it's going to be Facebook Live and all this stuff. And we're starting looking into um, the use cases that our competitor will go, will venture into, which are celebs, media, and news, and map all those use cases based on what we see from our 2 million users at the point within like less than a month, like 2 million users using Meerkat. And we map it based on, because we have their profiles and we see how many following followers they have, we separate between influencers, media, news, all of these things. And we see that there is no retention for broadcasters on the 99% who are not celebs, media, news. And this is where we understand that the only thing that justify an independent company here is if you can capture an ongoing daily basis, obviously, that's that's rule for anyone. And then when you look at Meerkat, you say, okay, the only use case here that is a daily use case is celebs media news. And if both Twitter and Facebook are going to fight for it, when they have all the reach, we, we're not in business. Like, we don't have a business. And now you can either cry to mommy or you can say, you know what? Let's flip it on the head. What is a problem? Product that will focus on the 99% or not celebs media news. If they're not comfortable being live and going live, and that's the reason they are not continuing to engage, we had a pretty good understanding of like what are the things that bother them, mostly because people are boring. People are not interested in our day to day. Everybody wants to see Cardi B, but they don't. They don't. They don't need to see us. So then you ask yourself, what would get under Life on Air mission to bring people together in the most human way possible when they're physically apart? What will get the 99%? to actually go live on a day-to-day. And it required a certain openness and a certain being open to iteration from the company that was really admirable because everybody, you know, we were four months and we, we came to a board meeting and I walked through exactly the conversation, the what I'm saying right now to the board and I'm like, Guys, I like I could have put on the on the graph our water number, which was growing. The U, DAU growing, the water number growing. But what I showed is that graph versus the retention of the broadcasters. And I chose to look into the problem and say, this is why we're going to die in a month or like three, four, five months. It's not going to work out for us. And I actually don't think that maybe long-term it's going to be sustainable because if you cannot get, if you cannot get the day-to-day person to go live, it's not going to work out. And basically, three months, four months after raising $14 million from Greylock, Josh Elman and Evan found themselves in a board meeting when I'm saying, hey, guys, we need to start over. It's a challenging conversation to have, but I'm super grateful that everybody was supportive on that. And we came up with this metaphor of the house party. And it was such a clear, nice metaphor because we can then deduct all the product guidelines and the statement of the product, the manifesto of the product is a house party. So you can imagine people asking on the hills of, of Meerkat, people in the team asking, why wouldn't we stream the conversations? It, it makes sense. We just, just did Meerkat. So it makes sense. Maybe it sounds good on paper. And that's where we started having a real clear vision of what is house party and what makes a great house party. And that basically started a process in which within six months, uh, we were already in market, iterating with the market on house party, which was, some people think house party is aggressive now. It used to be much more aggressive in how it put people together in, in conversations. And we slowly chiseled away and tweaked it and tweaked it. And within, within a year from when we had the board meeting, uh, a million daily active Amazing. on house party, which was really incredible. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk too much about what happened at South by with the fundraising. Because it was at that moment that you went you went into a rarefied startup startup situation that just doesn't happen to most founders. Even the even companies I know that have exited for billions never went through an experience like this where the tables really turn on on the VCs and all the VCs saw Meerkat. It was the hottest thing. Everyone wanted to invest, and there was a big scramble to try to get your attention, to try to get on the cap table, to try to get your allocation. The sharp elbows came out. James, you were you were controlling that. I was like, James, I don't know anything. I was in the IDF three years ago. I was still like in in the army in Israel. You're gonna be you're gonna be on the on the you're gonna be controlling the cup table. And I think I still have access that Google Sheet. 
a Google sheet. I said, dude, let's just get a Google sheet and then we'll just work on it. And we went from meeting to meeting and then we just plopped ourselves down in the, in the lobby of the Hilton and one after the other, the different venture people came in and eventually we just sat with Josh because we knew it was going to be Josh uh, Elman from, from Greylock, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the greatest uh, social media investors in the world. And we then worked on the cap table there and it was, it was, it was rapid. It was acrimonious. There was people on the phone. Everybody was on phones walking around the table in the middle of the lobby at South by trying to get this deal done. And there are a lot of upset people um, because everyone wanted into your deal. You know, I actually have a good lesson from this. I think that it was so much pressure. Here's the thing. Sometimes going back to insecurity, sometimes you get validation from getting get this name and that name and this name and another name, and you end up giving a lot of small checks. Now, if you don't have a relationship with those people, those small checks, specifically if they come from not from the personal money, of the person and they're not operators, they're going to forget about you. And it's not, it's just business. It's not like they're bad people or anything. But if you expect somebody to add value to you, either you give them a big check so they have something to lose, or you make sure that the check is personal from somebody who does not do investing for a living. Because on both ends, you either going to, and, and that person is an operator. It's like somebody who's an operator is, is they have a job, she or he has a, has a job, they have a specific insight to something that you will need or need through their day-to-day, and they're putting the personal money. You can always call them and get help, and they will help you. The other way is if it's an investor, make sure that they're going to lose their, not lose their socks, but they're going to lose, it's going to hurt. Otherwise, you're not, you're just not going to get anything besides making yourself feeling good that you got some names on your cap table, but those names are not going to care. Because it's not exactly their money and it's not big enough to actually, it only gives them bragging rights and you bragging rights. And it's just an ego at this point and it's not really helping your company. It's a, it's a great point for, for startup investors everywhere. You know, picking, picking your investors, managing that cap table uh, so that uh, you're getting the most out of everybody who's got some equity in your company. And, and, and then also, of course, make sure their personality aligned, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've learned from that. And then, yep. Okay, so that was that was the Series A that happened at South by in the midst of the chaos. Four months later, you tell the board, guys, I'm not going to run from the numbers. I'm not going to tell you everything's great. I'm not going to lie to you, and I'm not going to lie to my team. I'm looking at the internal numbers. I'm looking for the problems. I'm looking for the weaknesses, and I have found a serious weakness. Yeah, and you could have gone for another four or five or six months before anybody would have known. Oh yeah, I would actually even challenge that. Not challenge. Sorry, add to this that I think we could have raised because we were still growing, growing. You know, twenty, thirty percent a month, which is you know, there is a thesis behind it that if it keeps growing, then Facebook not launching their yet to launch their Facebook live might want to acquire this uh, and stuff like this. So there were people start calling, right? The, the, the M and a P the M and a people at all the big companies need to do their job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when their boss asks them, have you talked to Meerkat? They have to say, yeah, I, I know Ben, Ben's a good buddy. We've had lunch. They have to say that. And so they reach out just to see what the deal is. And so there's relationships that get built. And they actually you know, learn something about your business, which is a little odd because they're your competitor. But ultimately, you can't not take the meeting because you know you got to build those relationships. So that's all going on at the same time. So you lean into the negativity that you see in the numbers. You're not scared of it. You're not pretending. You're not pretending so that you can go raise another bunch of money and they'll then tell people. You're, you're, you're honest all the way through. You tell people, this is not working. We got to pivot. The board has courage. The board is their product people. Yeah. And Aiden's got good framework. So Aiden from, from Aleph in Israel, right? For those of you who are listening. Yeah, Aiden. And, you know, um, also Gigi, who's one of the seed investors in, uh, in Life on Air, uh, he was so behind. I remember a breakfast with Gigi. We had this breakfast and I'm like, Gigi, you should see like house party, this thing that we're testing, uh, uh, and he's like, go all in on this. Like, I don't know what you're dealing with. Like, live Meerkat, live this. Like, he gave me such good boost and courage to, like, go and follow that. And I really, I remember that. Right, to add to the courage instead of dragging down with doubts and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's not going to work. I don't know. No, he was like, do it. She's a kind of an Israeli approach, which, you know, and right. it's something that I really like about growing up in Israel is that ability to be okay with things that are not going your way and try to understand that this is just the way things are and you can totally be happy and navigate that and find joy in that and just remove the, 
In Israel, they say somebody eat from my plate, somebody drank from my cup, somebody, you know, all of this, like, you just move it away and you just, okay, just deal with the reality as it presents itself. So you make the pivot, you go to house party, you got a million people a year later using the thing, then what happens? Because, you know, for founders out there, they need to understand that there's a, there's a mental pattern you've got to do things your own way, to try to bring people together in the most human way po- possible, even when they're physically distant. And that is a thread that lines through your personality and the way you've approached this. And the ups and downs um, were so extreme on your journey so far, just to understand the vicissitudes, the, the, uh, you know, how, how extreme it can be, so that they can put their own vicissitudes in perspective. It's even, even a guy like yourself who you know, uh, continues to put out very interesting products and, and has such successes like Meerkat and House Party and, and uh, has access to everybody in, in the Silicon Valley. You too have gone through the downs as well. So you pivot, it's, it's working. And then what happens? Well, a quick add to what, to, to what you're saying. This, what I realized over time that this mental framework of bringing people together in the most human way possible when they're physically apart, it actually started earlier when I started when I learned architecture and like dealing with space and how to create new opportunities for people to interact in ways that create a meaningful experience. That is one of the things that I really love about architecture. For some reason in my third year, I kind of light bulbs turned on and I said like the next space frontier is actually digital. I'm going to spend my time being an architect, continue being an architect, just in a new dimension that is people don't even think about it as, as a space. And, you know, today people are talking about presence and how presence is important and all these things. But this has been a clear, a motive of mine, something that I have so much passion. Uh, and I think it goes to like, you know, some things from my childhoods and how I got brought up and, you know, pain that I care with myself and learn and go through it in my own journey. But this is how, you know, some people deal with their pain and deal with their and grow through singing. Some people through playing guitar, some people become actors to like, process themselves. And I think for me, it's the creating of this presence and this shared intimacy and that I pursued in architecture and and then going and doing what I'm doing all the way to even the company that I'm doing now. So that's great. That's a great point. Just, I wanted to tie it up. It's just like, keep yourself open. Yeah. You got to keep yourself open to different uh, product uh, interfaces, to the same emotion, to the same uh, goal, the same healing of yourself and the healing of the people around you, making the world a better place. You know, this is a this is a thing that that I, I lament a lot, Ben. I mean, you know, if I, I think I said to you the other day that you know you're you feel to me like you're somebody from 2002. Like when people came to Silicon Valley, not for money, but you came for love, you came for product, you came for creative creativity, right? You came for for customers, you came for the people that you are serving in these spaces. And part of the th- reason I think that you're able to navigate the ups and downs of this so well is that you're not attached to the money. You're actually just attached to the product and to the vision and what you're creating. Yep. And I think that's an important point that we don't we don't make enough here in Silicon Valley is that everyone's gotten so blinded by the money, but underneath it all is a deep need we all personally have to create something. And those people, I think, are the ones who create the great products. Yeah, and I, you know, just to to nuance that is like I, I'm I'm very much attached to the idea of a good business that that is able to sustain itself and continue the message that you want to carry in the world. The idea of personal money, fame, power all the things that we seek because we feel insecure, these are the things that when things get in rough, people retreat because they are, this is something that my wife said, and I totally believe in that 100%. It's like, yeah, focus on the aim and not on the origin. When you hear about... Um, focus on the aim, not on the origin. Exactly. They're not focused on inside. Who am I? What am I standing for? What do I love about myself? What are the things that I actually enjoy doing, being present doing? They focus on, I'm going to achieve one, two, and three, and that will get me that. And then when things don't go that way, that's where all the insecurity and tension, and then where you don't let things happen in a way that is natural for you to grow into it, because you're so obsessed on a defined image that is not really obtained yet, and it's in the far. And you have not asked yourself why you are the way you are, and what do you want to do, and what do you love about yourself, and what do you do you feel like you want to deal with? Because there is joy in dealing with all the kind of pain and like understanding it. There is real joy in it. And if you are able to detach yourself from this idea of, you know, uh, the unfortunate things that came with the, the blood testing, th- uh, Theranos, that's, that, am I pronouncing it yet? Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, these and there's other 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 example where founders were so obsessed with the aim that even if they started from a place of uh, from a sincere place, it kind of got got lost because they never visited. They were never focused on the origin of where they work. And I still I always work with it also with myself, trying to understand why am I feeling insecure? What are the anxieties I have? Why do I procrastinate? What am I afraid of? And try to break it down to myself and understand, is it a distraction or is it true? Or what is it that I'm learning about when I'm angry about somebody or when I quote unquote hate somebody? What are they teaching me about myself? Like what, what is the things inside of me that I don't like that I look away that makes me uh, not like this person? And I, and I, and I learned, and that's what makes those things kind of, I find it to be very enjoyable. <laughs> like once you kind of change the step away. So yeah, that was a long ramble of saying, I don't have a problem with money. I like money, but it's like not. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. Money is, money is the fuel that goes in the rocket, right? But it's, it's focusing on building the rocket, not on the fuel. And, you know, it, it, also, it also is the case that these startups that we start, are self-development machines on steroids because you are experiencing so many things so rapidly, so intensely that it gives you so many opportunities to examine yourself and understand what makes you tick and then to try to understand your team and to understand the people you're co-creating with. Um, And that learning about yourself and about them is ultimately the reward for your own transformation. And that transformation well done could lead to a lot of money. But regardless, it could lead to a beautiful product that touches hundreds of millions of people like House Party does today. Yes. And, and the, the flip side, the, the downside of it is sometimes because of this, our culture, unfortunately, to your point, this, the tech culture, our culture, has started to so, so much uh, fetishizes the founder and the idea of the cover article and like, you know, private jets. And I'm hearing all these crazy stories about this thing. And I'm like, this kind of self-fulfilling i i idolizing or idolizing narrative yeah so it's a yeah the self-fulfilling narrative where, yeah. where the, the startup itself become a way for the founder to distract themselves this be a distraction from their own pain that they need to grow through and they were not they're actually what it becomes is a drug that is a band-aid and not a solution and then things start to just like get off the rails and this is where we see that the this incredible story from the ubers and the WeWorks and the where we're like, how things happen. And I don't know, by the way, I'm generalizing now. I don't know the details of all these things, but I give it as an example of we are busy too much in saying this person did that. That person is so cool. This person has all this money. And like, we stop talking about what are we building? What are you creating? Tell me about what it is that is new, that is innovative. And what is the joy? Like, I really wish that somebody would do a profile on an entire company through the eyes of one of the engineers or one of the product managers. And it's entirely anchored in the day-to-day thinking of the company and how that works. And that's the profile of the company. Uh, But instead, we like just because this is how we are as millennials. Millennials run are now in the phase where they mostly like in all, like they're in all the jobs, I would say, like they're in their peak. Uh, So as millennials, we are reacting to the previous generation by seeking status and going outwards uh, and where Gen Z is going more inwards. And, and it's so apparent, like how we think about Instagram and Twitter and how and what kind of founders we create and what kind of stories we have, because we kind of seek uh, validity going outwards because we are reacting to the collapse of the middle class that our parents had. And it's just like really interesting dynamic. And, and obviously how social no- uh, network came to be is just like make this thing um, much more apparent. Anyways. That's the core, the core of the founder journey, man. The core of the founder journey. And we don't talk nearly enough about it because that's your, that's your day-to-day internal life. Okay. So, so house party's doing well, million DAUs. What then happens? In a way, it's, it's still doing it's it's still the the following year did pretty well. It's just not as well. Like then you raise money and Sequoia did our again. We're in the same situation, which is quite quite incredible. It's like third pivot in and you the second back to back where you capture a lightning in a bottle. And Sequoia comes in and do and do um do leads a fifty million dollar round uh with participation of Greylock um and Aleph and you know we we set a plan and. You know, the product is growing, but it's not growing as much as you would expect from a 
company that have $70 million. And there is great engagement, but it's all around teams. And the growth is not enough for you to justify a new round. And the size of the users that we have, which was quite big and engaged community, is not big enough to also monetize. So you're kind of stuck. So you find yourself uh, two years later or a year and a half later, and you're like, what's happening? Like, we're kind of, there's millions of users using it every day, but it's just not growing the way we would expect things to grow right now. Right. And it's not, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not big enough or growing fast enough to be a threat to any of the big companies who would then need to buy it from a defensive perspective, the way Facebook bought WhatsApp or Instagram. Yeah, and Josh will tell you, it's like such an anomaly. Josh Elman, it's like, you don't see social products like this. Like, how come something gets stuck like this? Um, and and we we it either goes up or down. It either goes up or down. It either gets big or it goes yeah. Down. And we, yeah. And this was just holding. It's steady. holding steady and it's it's growing, you know. But it's just like not not enough. A lot of the same schedule that happens in high school. The fact that people have the same day to day schedule, so they are available and not available to talk at the same time. Uh, house party is a product that's based on presence. So if all your friends are available to talk, have homework at the same time, exam at the same time go to vacation at the same time, they're all available when you're available. And when you're not available, they're also not available. What happens when they move to college is that this is all out of the window. You know, it's like uh, people have different schedules and they're no longer as, they can be as active. It's funny, that can be as active, but still they're not going to match with other people for conversation. And another thing that changes is the the code of conduct changes. In high school, you want to be friends with everyone. You want to be, you want to know everyone. You want to be in the high school parking lot. But in in, in the college, it's, you know, you want to have new friends. You don't want to be friends with anyone. You might have developed more of your self-identity. So there are some people you want to be friends of and some people you don't want to be friends of. And you start being more selective about your time and, and selective about the people that you talk. And it was an interesting problem in terms of growth, because if you look at the classic growth accounting, which I'm pretty fluent at, to, to, to judge uh, what is the problem and identify the problem, you won't see it. It, look, it would look like how bees disappear. And, and we don't know why. We don't know why all of a sudden cluster of bees disappear here and disappear there. And why, you know, this phenomenon of like bees just, yeah. And it's just like, it's, you can't make sense. And then what we did is started matching it based on classes. So when did you start the class? When is your school end? When, and then things started to align and made sense. Oh, people leave to college and then they don't find the same heat match and they start to find new friends, but they're all friends come in and interrupt their their flow of, of work. And this is where basically said like, look, we have an amazing product. We have millions of users that are engaged. It is growing, but it's just like we either need to, to sell it or pivot because it's just not, we're not going to be able to Frankenstein our way away from this. And we're not going to be able to, you know, like when, when, when startups start to add more and more features. And the only time you need to add features is if you're growing like crazy and you have more and more and more uh, user personas and use different users starting using your product. So you add features for them. But if you're not growing, don't add more features. You know, don't use features to, to grow. It's just like not going to unless they're an enhancement of something in the core offering. I hope that's not too complicated. But what I'm trying to say is like, sometimes we try to do too much. And you don't want to turn it into a Frankenstein of a product. Yeah. You know, you could have lots and lots of ideas and yeah. everyone in the organization comes up with ideas and pet projects. And I want to try this feature and that feature. And if we change that, then it'll grow. And you'll just end up with a Frankenstein product. When you think about it as a song or as a dinner, when I think about consumer product, I always think about there are atomic units of consumer product that you can learn from everywhere, from your body, from a bodega that you like to go, from a menu in a restaurant, from a song. All of these are things that get other people emotional attachment. And there is something about their location, their timing, the narratives that they are saying within the community that makes them successful. And if you're able to spot that pattern, you can actually learn a lot from this analogy. And what I'm trying to say here is adding more items to the menu will not make this uh, restaurant successful. Making this song longer will not make it a hit. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like, in, 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 and, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting, dyna- it's an interesting d- dynamic to deal with, but I honestly think that you can learn a lot from that cool, fast, casual restaurant that is barely like, you know, 500 square foot, but is just killing it. And there's line around. There's something about it that's worth. And, and you can deduct from it and learn also for your own product. 
And by the way, even now, throughout the past eight years that I've been doing this, uh, metaphors like music and food are tools that I use on a day-to-day basis multiple times to explain uh, to my team and work with my team into understanding what is the attitude and approach that we have to things. One of my favorite things is uh, something that Miles David says, which I think is super important for people who build product. In jazz, when you think you play the wrong note, it's the next note that dictates if the previous one was wrong. And product development, especially in the zero to one stage, product development is jazz. Nobody can sit behind a computer and say, okay, I'm going to have a hit, a musical hit. Like you don't pre-write all the stuff and put the drums machine and the bass line and all the effects. And then you first press hit a play and now you have a hit. That's not how it goes. And you, we need to understand and learn from how creative peoples in different disciplines really come into the fermentation and the process of iterating and understanding what is the kind of feeling we're aiming to and letting things be open. It's really hard for engineers and for even product managers that are really product uh, process oriented, which is something good. How do you create a shared language within that team that allows for an open space to see beyond what's there, to be okay with answers that are not there? And how are we okay with a process where answers present themselves as we're playing the music and feeling what's wrong and right? Or or else what happens, just like what happened with Yevo, you end up doing a lot, a lot horizontally, and you don't know what is your next step because you you have no idea where you are. There's so many things that you're doing, right? And instead of doing 10 steps at a time, what you want to do is one, understand where you are and know where is second and then go to second and look because there's so many things that you can do we can do anything with software we can do literally anything and that's the beauty of it how do you navigate within a feeling so when i work with my teams i try to create my specs look like one page of a proposal that thinks, thinks about the rhythm and the attitude and the melody a little bit of it and i I find ways through explaining the goal, the high-level goal and the problem, and through examples to leave the open space for the discussion between the team and the jamming to actually reach the answer. So I'm trying to, and it's part of my own growth process, how do you move away from defining the answers to defining the question, which is a cliche, but it is, but it is, what are we, what are we asking here? Right. Um, and that's that's the beauty of it. That that's that's I think what's what's the beauty of it. So you had to pivot or sell. So we had to pivot or sell and um we you know, you're seventy million dollar in the bank. This is the third the third pivot. House party is the third pivot or even the fourth pivot if you actually count air. You know, at this point you're eight years in and seventy million dollars is not a, a you know LPs need to see returns. People need to see something. And it becomes a really hard conversation, not with, between you and investors, but also between you and your team to convince people to go for another pivot. And this is where we had a really, it was a hard conversation, but it was a productive one where you kind of realize that, okay, we need to sell. Like, you know, people have, you know, been troopers have been like pushed through like two pivots, some people, three pivots, Uh, you know, this company had so much different cultures uh, and you just need to say, okay, you know, this is where the journey for that is ending. And we're going to, we're going to sell, we have a great team. We have a terrific product and we can find a great place to land it and, uh, and hopefully provide value to whoever acquires us. And, um, we thought we we will be able to sell it to one of the social networks. And I was excited. To be honest, I was like excited. I was like, you know, I'm going to sell it to somebody. I know I'm not going to make money, but I'm going to learn like how much I'm going to sure I'm going to learn from going into a big company. Like I'm going to learn. Um, and then it, it, then we realized that the social networks are not going to do it. And um, once we realized that I had a hard time, like, the next move, our plan B was like, okay, we're going to go after media companies and, and gaming companies, which is a really good idea, but it's just not who I am going going into. And then I had to have a conversation with the board, uh, with my co-founder and said, you know, this is just not, not me. It's, it's, I, I don't know how I can go 
to a media company and, and work on this. But it's a great plan. And um, I was lucky because my co-founder could step up to that. And that's that was her break, uh, uh, background. And she did. She and the team did a great, great job finding uh, Epic Games. And it was a perfect match because we had so many people using uh, House Party when they used Fortnite. And it all worked out. And I got to start a new company and, uh, and we ended up selling the company, which is great. And the team's over there at Epic Games, and now the thing's blowing up. And Exactly. And that's something incredible to be proud of because, you know, we built that product together. And they added all these games that I'm sure are people love using during, during the COVID. And uh, people find a lot of comfort in it in these days. And it's pretty incredible. Like, I feel super proud. Dude, how many people get to say, hey, I had a product with like hundreds of million people using it. It's like pretty cool. Do you feel do you do you feel regret? Do you feel regret that you sold it? No. At the time, like you cannot predict the you, you cannot predict the COVID and you don't know what will happen after it goes away. You know, you cannot you have no idea. And I think that we did the right decision and I think Epic got a great deal. Everybody got a great deal. Like the team got a great deal. I got a great like everybody got a great deal. Yeah. And it's still alive and it's still growing and you get to see the fruition of all the work that you did for eight years to, nav- to navigate there to your fourth your fourth pivot worked, right? Exactly. Uh, so, what do you when you look back? What was the highest high, and then and then what was the lowest low? The highest high, I was baking bread at home, and I was doing a process. This is before it became like trendy because of COVID. We're talking 2016 here, and I got a push notification from. This is sorry, to, end of 2015. I got a push notification from our POC product of House Party. And I got into this zone when I'm... Sometimes I have this feeling where like things click and I start to jive with it and I understand it. And I was listening to the song of Drake back to back. And as I'm listening to back to back, I'm kind of kneading my dough. And it's the first or second notification that comes from the POC of House Party. And it's Ryan Cooley... And this guy, Will Dennis, who is, who is now actually a film director, and he has a movie out. It's like incredible. These are guys who are on your team. Playing with the, yeah. with the POC. These are notifications from members of the, of the Using the first, yep. the first POCs. And I'm like back to back, and I swipe in. And, you know, Ryan is doing his thing. Will is doing his thing. Like one of the first conversations on House Party, and it was like a real genuine moment. And I was listening to this song, this back to back. And it's like dawned on me that we're going to have a back-to-back hit because that feeling of, oh my God, this is an incredible aha moment. Like these are my friends. They're jumping in, like all team members, but like we're, we're friends. Like they're, we're jumping on, we're having a conversation. I'm needing dough. Like, and the song is banging in the, in the, in the background of Drake back to back. I'm like, we are going, this is going to work. Like it just, and it was a high. It's like the joy of like the small things, but it was knowing that you're building something true and unique and special and it grabs you without you it has its own life because it grabbed your attention you didn't seek its attention and you're like we're gonna do it back to back and it, and it did yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you say back to back and drake is singing back to back you mean that you caught lightning in a bottle with meerkat and then you're gonna catch it again with house party that was that was yeah that's the idea i'm just clarifying for the people listening that, that's what you mean by do it a second time back to back yeah <clears throat> that that's amazing that's amazing and what was your lowest low the lowest low was definitely the understanding that I cannot pivot it again and I will have to I will have to sell it. And like you know, and, and making peace with it and understanding that this is the right course of action. Sure. Sure. So you're uh after that you become an EIR benchmark. Uh you start coming around and meeting with all your friends like me and talking through new ideas and now you're launching your next product, Slash Talk. Tell us about the Slash Talk. Well Slash Talk is uh is a product for fast decentralized conversations. And the idea is that we're going to be, we're anti-meeting tool. So we're trying to break down. So it's, so it's for work? So it's for work. So instead of going after consumer, you're going after sort of the work environment or? I'm going after people who have work and are tired to spend their time in meetings that are not productive. Uh, they are the lowest common denominator, like time and getting people in the same thing. And I think it actually hinders creativity where we tie ourselves to this arbitrary constraint of time 
And usually they're not inclusive because the person who talks most is the person who is like getting the most reward for the meeting. And I think that as creators, as contributors, and there's like in Slashdog, we just put our manifesto there. As contributors, we, everybody inside is both contributor and talker. And we say talker, talker is the side of us that is insecure, that is always preamble, me- like long preamble in meetings, bloated agenda, trying to, to say something And the contributor is the one, the side of us that try to build. And I think that the tool of meetings, the idea of meetings is is important for some use cases, but the most use cases, it actually suppresses the part of us that builds and it gives rooms to the part of us that talk. And what we're trying to do with Slashdoc is to break down the meeting into the building blocks of the topics, the people and the time. And we're trying to reorganize conversations to they're going to be topic driven, going to be super fast. And it's a totally different way to think about how you construct a, co- a live conversation with your IC. And, and it's really cool. You know, we got, we got some people who worked very early on on House Party uh, back in the team uh, working on this. Uh, I, uh, my co-founder uh, used to be the GM of engineering of Skype. And he's like both an incredible engineer and can manage a team of 300 people. Which And he brought some, you know, early Skypers on and uh, and we get some people on Facebook and, and it just... Uh, they worked on interesting products and um, it's really starting to jam really cool. We are definitely in the jazz f- phase right now. It's a totally different way of how you jump on a quick conversation with your teammate. Another way to look at it, just to kind of, is that we have inbox for meetings, it's called calendar, but we have all these like quick three to five minutes micro conversations usually in the form of like, hey, do you have a minute that are starting to increase more and more as we the organization becomes more remote and decentralized. And we don't have an inbox for them. We're running around with like little, little topics that we scribble that we need to catch up with James or need to catch up with this designer. And there's no inbox for them. And there's no organizing principle of how do we have a place for all this conversation to happen? And not only this, how do we make sure that the value that's come out of it is something that other people can build on top so we're focused specifically on internal quick unscheduled calls that happens. So I'm excited about this and we're going to see we're going to see what happens. Yeah, it's, I think it's exciting. I think there's it's such a fertile soil, right? I mean there's so there's so little solutions for that and there's such a big need and I think in 10 years when there's a solution whether it's slash talk or something else we're going to look back and say how the heck did we do it before? I mean it feels like there could be that kind of a switch. And it's like, you know, in one spectrum we have the presency things like be live now, call people now or be just like live. And on the other side of the spectrum, you get the meeting, the schedule meeting. But the work is being done actually in the middle. There is a gray area that doesn't even have a namespace. What is a micro conversation? What is a quick, like we don't, we, you talk to engineers in Stripe, they will say we don't have meetings. Uh, and then I ask them, uh, do you jump on a quick call with, with your colleagues? Oh, all the times. So they don't even call it meetings. And now you need to understand, okay, there is this new emerging use case of this like quick unscheduled calls. And if we believe that organization and work is going to continue decentralized, this use case is going to grow more and more. And there's no inbox for it. There's no organizing principle for it. And this is actually where work is getting done. This is where 2ICs review code. This is where an engineer and a designer see where spec is missing. This is where uh, two people review why they're getting errors in the compilers. This is where work is getting done. And if you're able to actually solve the pain there by owning that funnel, you are actually sitting on where conversations and the workflow actually converge. And you can start indexing the conversation about work with the actual work. And this is how this thing can become an actually a system of record of the internal conversation in the organization where people can actually point back to all the conversation happening around the file, all the uh, things that are relevant for you to know and not know when you approach your work. And the, the approach we take on it, it doesn't even look like an app. I'm excited. I'm, I'm really excited to, to show it to people. Well, if I know anything about you, it's going to evolve and iterate uh, over the next few years. It's something that uh, catches the lightning in the bottle. So I'm excited to watch it. Yeah. Ben Rubin, it's been a great pleasure to have you, my friend. And um, thanks for coming. Thank you. 